Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at belief? Hi, everyone. Welcome to Episode 6 of the Lovable Podcast. Over the course of this year-long podcast, we're going to be talking about how to embrace our worthiness, find belonging, and live into our passions and purpose. Now, at this point in the year, we're focused specifically upon what it looks like to slow down, to let go of our efforts to find a sense of worthiness outside of ourselves, and to embrace the worthiness that already exists within us. Today, we're going to get even more specific about identifying the things we're searching for that will only disappoint us and how to begin to release the search for those things. Now, before we get into it, though, a reminder, if you would like to join the conversation, we're recording these podcast episodes every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Central Time or Chicago Time on Facebook Live. And you can go to my Facebook page, which is Dr. Kelly Flanagan, to tune in. However, an even more reliable way to stay up to date about the Facebook Live recordings and the podcast is to make sure you're subscribed to my weekly newsletter, which comes out every Wednesday morning. If you aren't subscribed to that, you can go to drkellyflanagan.com, that's drkellyflanagan.com, and sign up in the right sidebar. You'll get the weekly reminder along with all sorts of other free stuff. Also, this might be the first time you're hearing about Lovable. If so, you can go to lovablethebook.com, that's lovablethebook.com, to find out all about it. It's available in paperback, digital, and audio wherever books are sold, so you can pick up a copy and have an even better sense of what we're doing with this podcast. And if you're interested in finding out how people are reacting to Lovable, you can go to Amazon or Goodreads to read the reviews. I think there are almost, I think almost 300 posted reviews at this point between the two sites. So check those out. Now let's get into this week's episode. This is the most thoughtful, most vibrant conversation we've had yet, and I'm excited to share it with you. Thanks again for listening in. Hello, Facebook Live. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Lovable Podcast in week five of the year of listening, loving, and living. This week's chapter is entitled, Letting Go of the Solution to All of Your Problems. Last week, we talked about how sometimes all of our efforts to fix ourselves can actually undermine the very healing we are hoping for, and that in contrast, accepting ourselves can lead to real and lasting change. This week, we're going to build upon that by getting even more specific. We're going to talk about how we are all hoping for or working toward a so-called solution that we believe will solve all of our problems. Then, in our weekly practice, we're going to identify what that solution is for each of us, and then begin to slowly let it go. Before we get into this week's reading and practice, though, I just wanted to pause for a moment and check with you about last week's practice. If you remember, the focus of the week was pressing pause on any or many of the self-help activities with which we're engaged. Rather than running away from who we are now by trying to become someone different, we wanted to focus on being present to our present self and embracing who we actually are. So I'll open the discussion by sharing an experience I had this past week. Um, It is uh, fall in Chicago, 
which means the temperatures are dropping and uh, you have to go through the, the sort of fall ritual of winterizing your house, uh, winterizing your ground. So, you know, you've got to take hoses off of the spigots so they don't freeze and burst in the, in the winter time. Uh, you've got to get yards cleaned up. You've got to um, throw covers over uh, patio furniture and take in other furniture and, and get out, um, you know, get out shovels and all that stuff. So I was doing that this past week, and I I didn't recognize it right away. I actually did something. I, I as I was outdoors in nature and it was gorgeous outside. I threw on a pair of headphones and I started listening to the. And I mentioned this last week, the Brene Brown book that I'm really enjoying. I started listening to that. Uh, and sort of getting lost in that. And it, it kind of hit me in the middle of, uh, of being outdoors that, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm not practicing the very thing we talked about practicing this week. I've sort of introduced self-help into this space where I could just be present to my life. Um, so I took the headphones off and I focused on just being present um, sort of to the, the rhythm of the season um, and letting myself just sort of settle into this ordinary rhythm of life um, and being present to that. And it actually became a very rich experience. Um, I found myself feeling less like I needed to uh, get somewhere else, um, take in new knowledge, fix something and get somewhere else and more like I could just be present and enjoying what was going on even though it was work. Um, and so that to me was an example of kind of catching myself with that impulse towards self-help and instead settling into the moment. Julia writes, self-help as subtle self-rejection is going to be an interesting lens. I've been lucky to read a couple people who are skilled in self-acceptance. Mantra and 100 to 1 shame offset. Going to ponder that too. Gently though, without being too rigorous about it. Good, Julie. I like that. Um, I like that frame on it, right? That even the effort to let go of self-help can become a new form of self-help. If we sort of hold ourselves to performance standards and feel like we have to do it just right and that it's going to get us somewhere if we do it in a perfect way. So I, I love the idea that even this practice of letting go of self-help has to be done in a way that is gentle to ourselves, uh, is, in, is tolerant of ourselves so that we can embrace ourselves in the midst of that process rather than it becoming yet another form of, of self-rejection. That's so good. Brenda writes, mantra, feel, rest, break, free. Ooh, I like that. Um, a sequence of words that can sort of root you in where you want to be oriented, what you want your attention to be focused on, what you want to be aware of. Feel, rest, break free. I love it. So it sounds like, to me, one of the things that was most helpful about last week's practice was not just the taking a break and pressing a pause on the self-help, but specifically adding that mantra in. Um, the thing to replace it with, the one thought to focus on. Um, and, and I'm so glad that that did resonate because I think it's an important addition. Uh, we don't want to just create a vacuum. We also want to create uh, a focus that is specific and, and uh, um, helps us to settle into this moment and into who we are. So um, let's, let's stay focused on that going forward. Um, the idea of having a mantra that helps us take our acceptance of, of ourselves from our heads down into our hearts. Deb writes, I've been slowly practicing self-acceptance after picking up your book in July. It was the first time I actually saw the concept. You are enough right where you are. Deb, I'm so glad to hear that you spontaneously started practicing that <laughs> after reading Lovable. And so maybe what we're doing here is we're just giving you some more um, 
kind of specific ideas, a range of ideas about how to actually impl implement that, that self-acceptance. Um, not that you need it. If it's something that's spontaneously beginning to happen for you, that is fantastic. Um, but maybe here we're going to give you just some, a few more ideas about how to deepen that and enrich that, that sense of self-acceptance. Okay, so now let's transition into this week's reading, which is going to build upon last week's practice. Uh, now, those of you who have listened to previous episodes know I like to connect this companion book back to the ideas in Lovable, so I thought I'd read a passage from Lovable that gives this week's reading and practice some context. Uh, remember, in Lovable, I write about how our lives are like a story, and that like any story, they have three acts. In the first act, we embrace our worthiness. In the second act, we find belonging. And in the third act, we live into our passions and our purpose. So with that in mind, here's an excerpt from Lovable. A few years ago, an Icelandic tour bus driver contacted police to report that a foreign tourist had gone missing. The driver described the woman as, quote, Asian, about 160 centimeters, in dark clothing, and speaks English well. Fifty members of the tour group set out on foot to look for the woman. In all the confusion, it turned out the reportedly missing woman was actually a member of the search party. She had changed her clothing at a rest stop, and the bus driver no longer recognized her. Unbeknownst to her, she was searching for herself. Later, the woman would say she didn't recognize the description of herself. Few of us do. If I told you about someone who is gloriously messy, beautifully weak, breathtakingly strong, lovely and good and whole and holy, would you recognize this description of who you already are? Most of us don't. So we abandon our first act and go searching for ourselves in second act relationships and third act purpose. But we won't find ourselves there either, because like the woman on the Icelandic tour bus, we're searching for a self that was never really lost to begin with. So that's the context uh, for this week's reading, and I will um, go ahead and read that now. Week 5. Letting go of the solution to all of your problems. The roller rink is one of those places time has forgotten. And, as we pull into the parking lot, it seems this particular roller rink has been a little more forgotten than most. A young lady stands behind the cash register. She takes our money, gives us our tickets for the skate rental, and then she walks around a wall and stands in front of the skates. By the time I go to the concession stand for microwave popcorn, she's staffing that as well. By the end of the day, I'll catch glimpses of her sweeping up. She's a Jill of all trades. It must keep the payroll down. It's chilly in the cavernous rink and the ceiling is stained by decades of a leaking roof too expensive to repair. Yet some things are timeless. The disco ball and the flashing lights, the playlist of pop hits from the previous year, the DJ, the rolling referee in black and white stripes, the cool guy zipping in and out of little kids like a tiny human slalom course, my oldest son rocking from skate to skate, mostly trying to avoid tomorrow's bruises, my younger son, a little more practice, clearly getting a thrill out of skating laughs around his older brother. My daughter, clinging to both my wife and the wall as she becomes less timid with each circuit. And me, dad, standing on the sidelines in tennis shoes, watching all of it, feeling this strange, wonderful thing creeping in and wrapping its warm tendrils around mind and heart. It's not ecstatic, but it might be joy. It's not perfect, but it might be peace. The urge to check my iPhone for I don't know what mostly subsides, and for a couple of hours, I'm almost completely present. I have no idea what to make of it. My wounds are still there. My fears are still there. My questions are still there. Nothing special has happened. In fact, by most standards, it's an excruciatingly mundane afternoon. And yet I want to pause the moment forever. Have you ever had a moment like that? 
Suddenly, without explanation, the stars seem to align, and without doing anything, the pressure in your chest eases and the thoughts in your mind untangle, and you can't explain it, but it seems like everything's going to be okay. And you know you didn't do anything to make it happen, and it feels like a gift. One you want to open slowly, so the moment of grace won't pass you by, as you know it inevitably will. In a place time forgot, I'm standing and watching and having a moment like that. Eventually, of course, the moment passes, and the kids get tired and crabby and entitled, so we shed skates and don coats and head home. And five hours later, I'm still wondering what happened to me in the roller rink, when comedian Jim Carrey takes the stage to present the Golden Globe for Best Comedy, and begins with this. Quote, I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey, going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream, no sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey, because then I would be enough. It would finally be true, and I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. Comedians are indeed the truth-tellers, and when I hear his words, I know this is the truth. I felt joy and peace at the roller rink because for one moment in time, I called off the terrible search. I settled into what was, and for an hour or two, it was enough. I was enough. Where do you search for your enoughness? If you're like most of us, you've searched for it in the attention and approval of your parents, in social circles, in girlfriends or boyfriends or marriage, in good grades and good accolades, in things and in stuff, in the self-help aisle, in your striving for stability, and in your hungering for happiness. I know I have. And ironically, after all that terrible searching, the place I found a moment of enoughness, and the peace that always goes along with it, was in a roller rink that time forgot. Because for one blessed afternoon, I forgot. I forgot to search for it altogether. It turns out peace doesn't happen when you find what you're looking for. Peace is what happens when you call off the terrible search for what you already have. Joy is what surprises us when we stop feeling compelled to create it. Wholeness is what we experience when we embrace all of our splintered parts. Peace is what happens when we quit doing violence to the present moment by searching for a better one. You can call off the terrible search. You already are what you are searching for. You are enough. It is already true. Heather writes, Wow, okay, my mantra last week makes perfect sense now. Heather, I would love to hear what that mantra is if you feel comfortable sharing it. Heather writes, I'm good enough. Mantra last week on playback constantly. That is fantastic, Heather. I'm so glad that that is, that is the mantra that came to you. Um, and that you're, you're right. That is essentially the mantra that we want to be heading toward in this week's practice is, I'm good enough the way I am. None of the solutions that I've imagined that will make me feel good enough um, will do the trick because the truth is it's already true. Um, I have to embrace that it's already true that in my current state, I am good enough. I'm already worthy no matter how messy things are. Oliver writes, being instead of doing, finding our true self. Julia writes, there's an invitation to privately fight shame and celebrate in the highs while also practicing balance, taking perspective. Yes, absolutely, Julie. So a couple a couple anecdotes, I guess, that help sort of anchor this for me even a little bit more. Uh, one of them is my one of my favorite sort of philosopher theologians, um, Peter Rollins. He tells this he tells this kind of meaningful, funny story. He's reflecting on the old cartoon of the uh, the Roadrunner and Wildy e. Coyote, and the Coyote's always chasing the Roadrunner and trying to capture him. And uh, 
and he, he makes this observation that, you know, the road, the, the, the coyotes equipment from the Acme company always backfires on him. And, uh, he ends up not catching the road runner. And he says, I don't think that that, that, uh, equipment is backfiring. Um, no, no company that makes that shoddy of equipment would, would continue to be in business. I think the, the coyote is sabotaging his own equipment. And why would he do that? Um, and he, he would do that because he knows that the only thing worse than not getting what you want is getting it. Because once you get what you want, then what's next, right? What happens the day after the coyote catches the roadrunner? The thing he was searching for his entire life, the thing he thought he needed to capture that would solve all of his problems and make him feel whole and everything else, he catches the roadrunner and it doesn't do the trick. And so what do you do the next day? Um, and I think that's sort of the thing that, that all of us are facing is that we have this idea that something, something is going to make us feel whole, something is going to make us feel at peace, something is going to make us feel good enough. And so we chase these things. Uh, but what happens the day that we catch them and they don't do the trick that we thought that they would? I think for me, most recently, the best example of that was, um, it was sometime mid-spring. Uh, I had sort of gotten sucked into a search for the success of my book, Lovable. Uh, sort of gotten drawn into this idea that if Lovable... Uh, sold a bunch of copies and was a bestseller what got great reviews or whatever that somehow it was going to solve all sorts of problems for me I'd finally feel um, Like I'd arrived like all my work was worth it and, and so on and so forth and I was sitting on the, uh, the side of a hill I was helping several friends put a boat dock into a river uh, on a Saturday morning and the thought finally hit me That would create more problems than it would solve uh, this search that you have for success that you've, it's taken so many forms in your life, Kelly, and now it's sort of latching onto this book. Um, that, that search for success always creates more problems than it solves for you. Um, and so you are going to have to settle into you. You're going to have to find a sense of, of peace and a sense of worthiness right here in this moment. And, and once I was able to release that search in that moment, um, I did find that sense of peace. It was one of the more peaceful mornings I'd had in a long time. Um, so this, this is sort of the focus of this week. How can we begin to release that search for this, this promise of a solution that isn't going to exist because we're searching for something that we've already got <laughs> um, and that embracing that we've already got it is really the key. Angie writes, I wonder if we learned our not enoughness from Eve in the garden when she said, no, God, all that you've given is not enough. Um, you know, Angie, that's a beautiful observation. One of my favorite ways of thinking about that story is um, that the, the serpent in the story, right, the snake is the one that brings the message to Eve. And, and whispers and suggests you could be more. Um, you're not enough the way you are. You could be more like the creator. Um, if you do this thing, maybe you'll be more like the creator. And so that in a way, the serpent is the voice of shame, telling us we're not enough that we, the way we are, that we could be more. Um, and I think that's consistent with the way that um, shame and mess work, right? That as we begin to take on shame, we create more of a mess of things trying to solve our sense of shame. Um, and that if in that moment we can respond to that serpent, that snake, that sense of that voice of shame by saying, no, I'm, I'm okay the way I am. I'm enough. I don't need to be like anybody else. I don't need to be like anybody who I think of as better or bigger. Um, I'm okay just the way I am. Then we, we prevent a lot of the mess that we create in searching. Brenda writes, I also have enjoyed the timeless moment of standing on the sideline 
of a rundown roller skating rink watching my family skate. Oh, Brenda, I'm so glad that I'm not the only one and to know that that's something that is uh, peaceful to you too. Um, I've always wondered, like, is it nostalgia? You know, nostalgia for a different time that, that um, makes me feel more peaceful in that situation. Um, but I think there's just something beautiful about watching a family do something together and watching an entire crowd of people sort of moving in unison, enjoying the same songs, enjoying the same activities. Um, I feel like it's a way that we connect at a, at a higher level than, than we typically do as people. So, I, yeah, there's something about a roller rink I really appreciate, too. Deb writes, I have realized that I do not need to be fixed, but need to naturally evolve and go through living my natural life, seeking my passions and letting go of what doesn't fit anymore. Boy, I love that idea, Deb, that, you know, you're, you're sort of, you're getting at the heart of paradox there, right? That to say that I don't need to be fixed doesn't mean I won't change and evolve and grow and be transformed. Um, that, that, but saying that I need to be fixed is a starting point for growth that actually keeps us from growing. Um, but to say that I am entering into the natural evolution and growth of a human life and, and my human life, um, there's all sorts of freedom in that. There's, there's excitement in that. There's joy. There's anticipation. Um, rather than the dread and shame of, I need to get fixed before I can really get on with living. Um, so I really, really appreciate you sort of getting at the heart of that paradox there. Diana writes, what happens? You realize you are still the same you, but now you can stop being your own worst enemy, always seeking instead of gracefully accepting both the good and the bad in us. Yeah, Diana, I think that summarizes it really well. Uh, that is what happens. I'm still me, um, and I can quit resisting the whole range of experience that, that represents me. I can begin to embrace which parts of my experience I want to develop more, I can begin to be aware of the parts of my experience that I uh, want to reduce, lessen, let go of, um, but that I fundamentally am the same person in the midst of that, and that fundamentally I'm worthy in the midst of that process of discerning and growing and changing. Um, I love that. Julie writes, Deb, that's great. It can be easy to hang on to old things out of false sense of obligation. Question is, obligation to what? Oh, Julie, <laughs> that's a really good question. Uh, when we hold on to old ways of being and doing and thinking out of a sense of obligation, what are we obligated to? Um, are we obligated because we were told that's the way we get approval from other people? Uh, are we obligated because we were told um, that's the only safe way to live? Uh, you risk, you risk danger, you risk uh, perhaps even eternal danger if you if you do or act in a certain way. Um, what are the rules that we sort of took in when we were young and that said, this is the way that you have to be, and if you're not being that way, you've got to fix it? Um, how, how, do the, how does that play out? That's such a great, insightful question, Julie. Uh, I feel like that could be its own practice. Um, we won't be getting into it today, but for anybody listening, um, if I'm holding on to old things out of a false sense of obligation, what is my obligation to? So good. Brenda writes, obligation to commitments. Yeah, one of the things we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Brenda, uh, is this idea that um, we make commitments out of a sense of duty, and we have to be really careful about um, 
about filling our lives with too much of that. Um, sure, there are some things we have to do in life. There are some things we need to do. But when we're beginning to make our commitments out of a sense of duty rather than out of a sense of calling, um, it, we're getting into dangerous territory uh, because it means we're taking time and energy away from pursuing what, what we are here to be passionate about. And we're also we're doing things that are taking up spaces um, that people who actually are passionate about doing those things could step in and do. Um, so our obligation to commitments and to doing those things that have a sense of duty is something we have to be really cautious about. Julie writes, I've heard a litmus test for commitment. If it's not a heck yeah, then run the other way. Ooh, I like that. Um, and I do think that that's, you know, we're going to be getting into this more in the months of living. Um, but when we do have a passion for doing something, when we do feel called to something, um, the, the reaction to it is, is usually eagerness and excitement and enthusiasm and anticipation. Um, and then all sorts of other things start to flood in, fear and what ifs. And, but the, the, at the heart, at the core of it, is a desire to do it. So if we do have to be aware if there's a, if there's a resistance in us, um, if there's a sort of a lukewarm reaction to it, um, we have to question why are we doing it. Um, and there might still be good reasons for doing it, but it's a moment to pause and discern. Deb writes, in my opinion, I think growing up in such a dysfunctional family, I created my own set of rules in order to survive, but the rules started to rule me. I always felt I needed to be perfect. And Deb, I can't read the rest of your comment, but I so appreciate, first of all, your vulnerability. Um, and this, this awareness that I'm growing into as a parent, that, that kids want structure, they want rules. Uh, in fact, this past soccer season, I, I'd spent several seasons as a soccer coach wondering how certain coaches got their players to be sort of so responsive and tuned in and um, productive. And as I observed them, I realized that those coaches provided structure every practice. They had, they had rules and the kids wanted to follow that structure and those rules. And so when we don't have that structure and those rules, as, as kids, we make those up for ourselves. We start to create our own sets of rules and structures. And I think that's what you're getting at. In the absence of, of rules and structures for yourself, you created rules, obligations, duties, things you needed to commit to, ways you needed to be in order to be worthy. Um, and so I, I really, gosh, I appreciate that, that thoughtfulness that it's not always that we receive those things from other people, that sometimes we go about creating them ourselves. Heather writes, I think the only obligation I have to remember to be honest and truthful to myself, and that filters out to my spouse, children, and others. Boy, Heather, appreciate that. Um, you know, there's the reaction, uh, the, the quick reaction of being faithful and truthful and honest to myself, that that's somehow a selfish thing. But you're getting at the truth of it, that when we can do that, and we can do that sincerely, that begins to filter out to everybody we care about, everybody we know, and even people we don't know. We practice being honest and truthful in the world going on inside of us and, and become good at it in that way and then have the, the practice and the ability to go out and do that with other people. So it's not selfish at all. It actually is preparing us for authentic and, and genuine relationship. Brenda writes, hmm, I may be a little too heck yeah happy then I think better of it later to be good for my family. Laugh out loud. Thus, I need to be more obliged to my family commitments. I need to listen to my family say stop the search. Right. That that our enthusiasm for life could uh, be a disguised form of our, our search for worthiness out there and everywhere else, and that our family can come to us and say, you know, hey, stop. Um, you have a place to belong here. You're worthy. Um, it's okay to slow down. 
Um, I love that. Julie writes, friendships can be that way. Friends who will fight against us in the moment to fight for us in the larger sense. That is so true. I love that. A friend who can speak honestly about the ways that they see you searching and scrambling for things and who can just invite you into into who you are and into this moment. Um, they're fighting for you in the long run. I love that. Karen writes, there's a God-shaped hole in all of us and it's a void that only he can fill. Mm. Yeah, Karen, I've been I've been playing with that idea in my head, and I don't I don't know. Gosh, I don't know if the if my thoughts about it are well enough formed to to share. This 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 is the idea. <laughs> okay, this is the idea. Is that we look inside of us? If we want to use that metaphor of a, a a hole in us, and we see we see a, we see what we we think is a space. Um, uh, a hole inside of us. And so we go looking for things outside of us to fill that space. But we actually see it as a space within us because um, we we have certain preconceptions about who God is or what God is. And we've turned God into the solution, the thing that will fill that space. When in reality, God is that space within us. God is that spaciousness within us, and we're misinterpreting that altogether as a whole, when in fact that whole perhaps isn't even there. Um, I, that is a loosely formed thought, um, and uh, but I, it arises out of my sense that um, that I personally and so many of us um, turn even our search for God into um, another search that won't fulfill us. We have to keep going back for the same fix. We have to keep going back for the same um, ideas and the same answers and the same solutions from God. Um, when in fact, perhaps God is with us all along, but we can't see him because we have, um, have a different idea of what God should look like in us. Um, and I think I need to develop that thought more, but that's something I've been noodling on as well. Serena writes, wow, God is a space inside of us. That is not a whole. I deeply resonate with this. Well, Zarina, I'm glad to hear that. Um, I'm glad to hear that my half-formed thought was is something that that resonates. Um, the The power of that thought for me is um, uh, it begins to heal the feeling, you know, that I've had for much of my life, which is that that God is somehow absent from me. Um, and that when I start to realize that my, my idea of God is absent from me, who I want God to be, who I expect God to be is absent from me, um, and that actually God might be present to me, but I'm just, I just don't have the eyes to see. Um, to me, to that taken to its natural sort of extreme conclusion is that perhaps God is even the space within me. Um, and that I just don't want to, to embrace that. So I, I'm glad that resonates with, with you and, um, and we'll continue, I'll continue to think about that. Okay, so let's transition into talking about the week five practice. I'll go ahead and read it and look forward to discussing it. Week five practice. What have you been searching for and pursuing in the hope it will make you feel finally good enough? For Jim Carrey, it is one more Golden Globe statue. What is it for you? A romantic partner, a job or a promotion, a house or a car, an accolade, an apology, justice. Identify the thing you believe will finally give you a sense of peace. Write it down and write about it. List all the ways you've pursued this imaginary solution. 
Recall the times you seemed closest to reaching it and those times your failure to get it were most devastating. Let yourself complete this assignment slowly over the course of the week. As you become more aware of the ways you've searched for this solution, notice the small and subtle ways you think about it and pursue it in your day-to-day life. Decide how you want to let go of this search. In other words, decide what you are going to do to your piece of paper. Put it in a bottle, throw it into the ocean, burn it, shred it, mail it to a friend, set it gently in a river and watch the current carry it away. This isn't mere symbolism. The soul and the body are wedded. With your body, let your soul say goodbye to the futile search, because you already have what you are ultimately searching for. You are enough. You are worthy. No solutions required. So when I think about this practice today, one of the things that comes to mind for me is that uh, my wife and I went through a number of years, uh, maybe a decade, where we participated in about three different church small groups. And one of the the normal things to do for a church small group is, uh, once you form the group, is that you take a number of weeks and you share your life story. You sort of you sort of tell your story and and help people get to know you very quickly. Um, and one of the things I noticed in telling my life story three different times over the course of a decade is that it changed every time I told it. Um, and it changed because I had new insights and new awareness about what my drives and motivations were in life. Um, and so then I could retell the story through that lens. Oh, this is the thing I've always been searching for that I think will make me good enough. And now I can look back at all the events of my life and see them in a, in a very different way um, through that lens. And, and so sort of what I'm encouraging you to think about doing today is in a way, revisit the story of your life through that lens of what have I been searching for that I think is going to make me good enough? Um, and how has that uh, influenced this moment? How was that a part of this scene in my story? How did that lead me to make this decision? Um, and just try to bring that level of awareness to, to all of the events in your life um, and begin to do a survey in that way. And I think the other thing that I would add about this week's practice and it, is that, that truly the act of sort of writing down um, your awareness of the ways that you've searched um, for the solution to your problems, uh, and then and then doing something with that piece of paper, um, for instance, that isn't mere symbolism. And I'll give you an example. Um, you see this all the time that when someone loses a loved one, they hold on to a personal item from that loved one, or even in a more um, comprehensive sense, if if they if we have a loved one, for instance, who um, uh, w- you know, we'll hold on to, for instance, their ashes um, until we are ready to inter them or until we're ready to spread them, if that was the person's wishes. Um, many people go through this period of time where they, they hold on to those ashes um, and they wait to release them. And, um, and so I think some of us might find ourselves in a space in our lives where we are aware um, of the, the search that we've held on to, but we haven't quite released it yet. Um, and so this is an exercise to help you, not just symbolically, um, uh, but in a very real way, take that ne- next step towards releasing it. Um, burying the ashes, spreading the ashes, um, letting go of this, um, this piece of paper on which you've sort of described your search. Um, I think it can be a very meaningful activity. Heather writes, letting go of the search, definitely needed the permission to do that. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that there's, there's a space between becoming aware of the search and letting it go. And, uh, and I, I think it doesn't hurt for any one of us to be given permission to say, yeah, you can, you can let that go now. It's not serving you well. Uh, once, you, once you achieve or attain the object of that search, it will disappoint you um, because it is not going to bring you a sense of, of worthiness. Um, that's something that can only be embraced within you. It's not something that's anything outside of you or any achievement or anything else can, can bring to you. Marina writes, thank you for this insightful, soulful conversation. It brightened my mood. Marina, I'm so glad for that. Uh, I'm so glad to hear that the immediate effect was to brighten your mood. The, um, the search is a heavy, heavy experience in our life, right? The, the pressure of the search to find this thing that is finally going to deliver me into a sense of worthiness or get me where I feel like I've arrived in life, it is heavy. So the mere suggestion that we can begin to let go of it, we don't need to go on it anymore, um, we can find ourselves right where we are, um, I hope that that does initially bring a sense of lightness um, and, and brighten our mood in a way, um, because it is that is exactly the truth of it, is that our, our mood can be lightened because we, we don't have to carry the heaviness of this search. Lauren writes, I feel fear in thinking about letting go of the search, the empty space it would leave. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you for being vulnerable about that because you're not the only one who's feeling that and I'm so grateful for, for you having said it out loud um, or at least in writing. Uh, absolutely. What, what is going to take its place? Um, so in one of our very first episodes, maybe it was week one uh, actually, we, we talked about the metaphor of the true self being like a, uh, like a beach ball that we've sort of pressed under the, the water. Um, and the beach ball wants to rise to the surface, um, but we're pushing it down with something. And one of the things we're pushing it down with is our search. So as we, as we stop searching, as we take our hands off the beach ball, one thing that will rise to the surface is our true self. Um, but our true self has been hurt. Our tr true self has been wounded. Um, our true self has been told it's not good enough. So some shame will come to the surface with that as well. And I think that's what you're getting at. You have sort of a, a wisdom and an instinct that you, you might have to deal with some pain that rises to the surface too when you quit searching, right? Um, and so I, I, I appreciate your awareness of that, your wisdom about that. Um, and my encouragement to you is that the only way to get to your true self, um, that sort of uh, place of joy and lightness within you, is to also have to, to face some of that, those wounds and that hurt and that shame. And it sounds to me like you're summoning the courage to do that. Um, by just by ver just the, the very act of, of admitting that it's a fearful thing is a courageous step towards doing it. So um, good for you, Lauren, and thanks for helping everybody else out by saying it. Deb writes, Kelly, I find myself mourning the time I lost in my search to perfect myself. I am happy to be letting the anxiety go. Right now, it's a little bittersweet. Deb, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, my the, the reaction that arises in me to that is to encourage you and is to let you know that there was no other way. <laughs> there was no other way. You know, the coyotes, <laughs> the coyotes got to chase the roadrunner for a while in order to go, this isn't doing it. Um, and the coyotes got to, ironically catch the road runner <laughs> to go oh this really isn't doing it this wasn't the solution that i thought it was um and one of the things i love about 
uh, Richard Rohr's book, Falling Upward, Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life, is he says the first half of life, and that first half might last 70 years. He thinks of halves more as um, tasks rather than in amounts of time. The, the, the task of the first half of life is chasing the solutions, trying to searching for the thing that will make us worthy. Um, and then there's this transitional moment where we realize it's not doing it, it's never going to do it, and we begin to transition into our second half of life. And what Richard Rohr would say is that most of us never make that transition. Most of us continue to insist on searching, well, this amount of money didn't make me feel worthy, then maybe the next million will. <laughs> or 3,000 square feet didn't make me feel worthy, maybe 5,000 feet will. And so we stay stuck in that first half search. Um, and so you've made that transition, um, and it's something to be celebrated. And I hope that you'll, in the midst of, of growing into this transition, I hope that you'll find that compassion for yourself to say, I, I've been on a journey, and uh, I couldn't be on this part of the journey without the first part. Um, and uh, I've had the courage to step into the next part of the journey. And uh, I'm proud of you, Deb, and I hope that that's where you end up too, is proud of yourself. Jennifer writes, maybe the thing we're really searching for is our actual true self all along. You got it, Jennifer. You nailed it. Um, I'm searching for myself, and I think it's out there that I'm going to go find a self and make it a part of me when in reality it's right here. It's like it's like that excerpt I read from Lovable at the beginning, right? The, the, the woman on the tour bus who's out searching for the lost self and not even realizing that she's searching for herself that she's been reported missing, um, but was never really missing all along. That's exactly it, Jennifer. Thank you for framing it that way. Diana writes, I'm not sure what I've really been searching for, so how do I let go of an empty feeling? That's such a great question, Diana. Um, and this is, um, there are several points in the companion book where I say, if you need more than a week for this exercise, there's a reason I didn't say, uh, you know, first week of January, first week, second week of January. I, I don't want to, in the same way that Richard Rohr talks about halves of life, not as like 40 years and 40 years, a week in this case doesn't need to be just a week. Diana, if you find that you need more time to sort of settle into this idea that you're searching for something and to start to notice in the context of your life day to day, um, as, as those moments of awareness increase that, oh yeah, I'm searching for that to feel worthy. Um, I'm searching for that response from somebody to feel good enough. I'm searching for that um, achievement in order to feel good enough. If if it takes more than a week for you to grow into that awareness, take as much time as you need. Um, you know, our this this is week five of the companion book. If week six doesn't happen for a month from now for you, because it's just it's it's been a week that you've needed to settle into for a while, take your time. Do it. No pressure to rush through it. Joy writes, it's a relief to let go of the search for just a bit and just be, accept, relax. Yeah, it's, it, it's a, we get a small experience of that in the context of mindful breathing. That if we could breathe mindfully for 10 minutes and experience our mind actually slowing down for just a minute or two of it, we go, wow, that's what, that's what life can feel like. That's what my mind can feel like. I want more of that. Um, and so, Joe, I do hope that, that what happens is just a, just a moment or two of going, I don't have to search. That's what's happened for me in the roller rink. <laughs> That's what happened for me on a hillside this past spring. Um, and so just a moment of that can be sort of like a true north, where you can sort of, I'm going to get lost again, I'm going to start searching again, but I can always point back towards that. Um, I know that that's the truth of how life can be, that I can just settle into this moment and accept me. Um, so I do hope that you get uh, just a moment of that and you can, can sort of hold on to that going forward. 
Julia writes, practically speaking, there's a book called The How of Happiness that helps find the ki- these kinds of things. Awesome, Julie. Thank you for that resource. I uh, hope everybody got that. The How of Happiness. How to find the things that light you up and make a habit of doing them, knowing it moves the ball, however invisibly. Yes, that's so good. Yep. Yeah, if we have an instinct that something brings us to life, wakes us up, makes us feel more connected, that we somehow feel more meaningful in the midst of doing it, go do it. <laughs> now you don't need to understand how that's going to move you forward um, towards embracing yourself. You can simply go do it. Joy writes, I know I will always search as I have a great need to understand and find connections, but like anything, it can become overwhelming and it doesn't give us the time to appreciate where we are. Yep. I think for those of us who are adventurers, saying quit searching can feel a little bit unfair because uh, it can become a denial of who we are as well. Um, And so maybe for those of us who are adventurers and like to search, um, we can say this isn't about not searching altogether. It's about searching in a different place and in a different way. Um, So changing the nature of your adventure. Um, Instead of adventuring out into the world thinking you're going to find proof of your worthiness out there, it's venturing into yourself um, to discover the worthiness that already exists. So it feels like we could keep talking about this all day, uh, but we're going to conclude the discussion of week five right here. Next week, we'll start off by revisiting your experiences with this practice, and and then we'll focus on week six of the year of listening, loving, and living, entitled Unbecoming Who You Are Not. We will talk about the very freeing idea that we don't need to become who we already are. We simply need to carve away the things we are not in order to reveal the shape of our truest, worthiest self. Until then, may you begin to let go of the solutions you've been chasing so your arms are free to embrace something else, you, your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. In the words of Jim Carrey, may you stop this terrible search for what you know won't fulfill you and know that it is already true. You are already good enough. Thanks again for joining us on The Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable Podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable.